Welcome back to season two of the Run Culture Podcast. My name is Dane Verway. I'm an experienced running physiotherapist, coach, and marathoner. This season will involve open discussions with my running colleagues about the key principles behind injury-free running and optimal performance. It'll be backed by personal experience, science, and history. I can only hope some of these chats inspire curiosity and expand or confirm perspectives and beliefs amongst the running community. Anyway, I hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome back to episode 34 of the Run Culture Podcast, season two. Today, I'm very excited to share my latest podcast episode featuring return guest and good friend, Tom O'Halloran. He's a physiotherapist and founder of Mechanics of Movement, who has a great following on Instagram. And today, we continue on from our chat on episode 31, where we talked about running as a skill and dive deeper into the importance of skill acquisition and coordination in the running world. I apologise to Tom uh, for starting the episode before he knew it, but we were talking about baby deers and baby humans and the differences, and I thought his insights here were too important and interesting to uh, go unheard. We then further explore how we learn to move and optimise performance as humans. So don't miss our chat on attention, feedback, coaching versus teaching, degrees of freedom, functional variability versus non-functional variability, invariant movement, and many anecdotes. At the end of the show, we unveil our collaboration, the Run Stronger app, designed to enhance running performance and prevent injuries. So if you're interested, check it out via Mechanics of Movement Instagram bio. All right, without further ado, here's mine and Tom's chat. But just say like you take two um, animals, so like a ba- a human baby's born, yep, and then a a, a um, an animal like a deer, and so the human baby is born useless, like it can't move, it can't tend to itself, yep. it can't do anything, but a deer can walk like day one. And so the deer, or maybe not day one. Yeah, but yeah, like, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, I know what you mean. Like it, they're they're like. They sort of get going a bit quicker. So their whole world is reflexive. And so basically their brain is like not malleable and open to learning because it needs to be so reflexive. But they can't then adapt because everything is already inbuilt and learnt and reflexive and instinctual. Oh, wow. I've never thought of that. Whereas the baby is like, it's it's open to whatever environment. So it's so adaptable, but a human, that's why humans survive because they're so adaptable and the brain is so malleable to learning whatever the environment comes into it or whatever that little baby is exposed to. Yeah. Yeah. And so that, that means that 
we don't have much that we're useless for 18 months. Yeah. (laughs) But it's because our brain is so non-formed and so open to experience. And there's only these few little reflexes that, say like walking, the walking reflex is like a stepping reflex, which is there, but it's not, it's not um, a given. Like if there's kids called like feral kids who grow up um, in the wildlife, like they might have been lost or like oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. grow up with wolves and they often will crawl on all fours and they don't walk upright. And so like it wasn't a given, it was the environment they were in that they learned that they, they didn't learn to walk. Yes. But yeah. they can learn to walk later. But it's not this prescriptive, like, oh, at this age, you just learn to walk. It's like the environment influences that walking. The stepping reflex is there. Yeah. But it only comes about if the environment is conducive. Um, edges, yeah, is conducive towards the learning. Yeah. And so, yeah, nothing, not a lot seems to be top down like any movement is learned like but it's kind of that goal learned like apart from yeah those few like the writing reflex or like whatever those little yeah. reflexes which is more sort of sort yeah. of peds physio i guess yeah but, um yeah i think that that maturational approach is very prescriptive and it's more to do with like yeah, that open, complex system that's always changing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and that's essential, like, to have a learning brain that changes all the time because humans can survive in the snow, they can survive in the desert, they can survive up mountains, they can survive underwater. Like, we're very adaptable to the environment, whereas another animal is not. Like, a deer couldn't yeah. survive in any environment it's it's not adaptable and so there's pros in that in that it's like very independent and can move a lot more earlier in life but it doesn't have this flexibility of mind to to change according to its environment yep no that's that's um that's really cool to compare it compare humans to a deer like and how (laughs) like no because like i've never really thought about that like um but that yeah, that, that make, makes heaps of sense. Um, and then, yeah. like, I was talking to a, one of the kids I coach about. Uh, he, he sent me a video of a kid, like, doing um, perfect uh, uh, deadlift form um, and, and squats. And, yeah. and I, I, I sort of replied back, like, oh, yeah, kids are, like, a constant, constant inspiration for, like, um, like, good movement often as well because, like, I feel like there's also the idea that um, uh, the way they learn is is more by exploring the environment, and so as long as you're giving them enough variation and variety, um, and like a, a conducive environment to sort of um, learn different skills, like um, they're not overcomplicating it because the, yeah. their, their communication um, uh, isn't quite there yet, so they just sort of learn by um, uh, implicitly like just um searching their environment um so often like um yeah i think the way that they learn also is um should be an inspiration too 
Mm. Like, yeah, well, often they're just like, well, the kid doesn't really care how they move or if they get it wrong, I guess. Whereas the older we get, we're like, yeah. oh, was that right? Was that Scott form right? Like, and we won't trial and error it to find the best way for our body to perform it. Oh, the amount um, of people that have just gone, like, like when I've been trying to get them to run more efficiently and they're like, oh, was that right? And they're just like looking at me and, yeah. and, and, and then, then I'm sort of like trying to get them to, well, how did it feel to you? Like, like what yeah. did you feel was going on and trying to get them a bit more in their body? Um, mm. Yeah. 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 That awareness of, yeah. well, it's trust as well. It's <laughs> trust in like how you feel that felt yeah. <laughs> compared to how someone tells you that it looked. And that's like that feedback as well, which yeah, I was going to talk. Have we started yet? Yeah, I've, I've just, I reckon we just get cracking because I, I really right. like that um, piece about the, yeah, like the antelope or the, or okay. the yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. Yep. <laughs> I'm going to get so many raised eyebrows. Like, <laughs> babies and dicks. <laughs> but yeah, that comes down to like um, feedback. So feedback's another like principle that we think about. And I think I talked about the, um, the throwing feedback throwing as a skill and getting that feedback about, you know, how far did the ball go? But there's different types of feedback. So you can get knowledge of results yeah. or knowledge of performance. And so knowledge of results would be, I could, I could be getting this wrong, but knowledge of results, I think, is the outcome. Yep. So what happened? What was, the, what was the actual outcome? How fast? What pace did I run? Um, what was the cadence? What was this? What was that? What did the coach say? Uh, which is valuable, but you can also get knowledge of performance. So how did it feel during the movement? And so knowledge of performance is, yeah, just as if not more more important for learning potentially, but it's something that the person who is always asking for that knowledge of results isn't getting. Yeah. So they're not tapping into how they actually feel. And, yeah, potentially it's a disconnect between, like, trusting that that proprioception that feeling of the body that knowing where you are in space that kind of coordination um and always searching for knowledge of results so what did the garmin say what did um my coach say what did how did it look on video or that's just like always trusting an external source and the more you trust in that, potentially the less you trust in your own yep. self. Um, and yeah, we know that that's really important, that <clears throat> feedback for, for learning a skill. Yeah, well, would that like, so knowledge um, of performance, um, if someone like kept asking me, oh, did I do that running exercise right? Um I've found recently by sometimes, and it's everyone's so different, but some, some people, if they're running like, um, and they're just, I can tell that they're not really conscious of, of their foot. Like it's just sort of, um, they're just, uh, it just looks like they're not aware of how it, they're not aware of how they're using it. Like taking Mm -hmm. their shoes off, like has been awesome to like, Mm -hmm. suddenly just aware of, 
of their of their foot a bit more um mm -hmm. like for for the particular running exercise or even just visually like showing them like on mm. on on slow-mo like how they're how they're moving but then that's where it gets a bit hard because um i, I found um with a lot of the coaching that i've done so far like i've i've um definitely overcoached here and there and and i've got i've got some people more confused than than uh in, in a few few instances but then mm -hmm. the times where it's worked really well like we're focused on like the one key uh key key uh thing that they should be focusing on and then the the whole system almost like dominoes has just worked like it's the whole body is kind of self-organized and and uh uh like uh one one big um aspect that I, I work with like a lot of runners is swing leg retraction like trying mm -hmm. to get them to swing swing their leg um down yep. in, and back into the ground and i feel like so many things in the ru running form like good running form efficient running form kind of uh just present in the body if you can start getting that right like it yeah um yeah yeah and then that, that that's focusing on the right cue or the right the yeah. right thing whereas like if you like i've had heaps of people like oh well shouldn't i focus on this this and this and it's like no yeah. just focus on this and then that that'll help everything else that you're after unfold yeah, yeah yeah everything will fall into place if you can just get your leg over this hurdle or and that's key yeah. like again attention is key so we're really talking about learning so how to how someone actually learns yeah and so you can't talk about learning without attention like any school teacher would know <clears throat> that the only <clears throat> the only real way to learn something whether it's movement or a concept or idea is to be present like to have your attention there um, and when we when we over cue basically we're potentially getting someone thinking so to learn that skill we don't want someone consciously thinking because when we think too much about different areas of the body um we actually start to what's called freeze degrees of freedom and so you could think of that so freezing degrees of freedom is almost like moving rigidly so rather than moving with like flow and coordination through space if i think too much about a joint then i'll what's called freeze it or co-contract around that joint. And all of a sudden it's not moving three freely through that movement skill. And so this comes down to even things like, um, choking in sport. So when someone is, yeah. So when someone chokes, basically often what happens is they're thinking too much about their body. So they've, someone's overcomplicated it or they're too self-conscious. So they're conscious of the self about their movement. And so they start to lock up joints or not move as freely. And that is detrimental to performance. So you actually want to get that athlete's attention away from conscious thinking more just towards solving a problem yeah. and so again as a coach the key is to create the right problems or the right environment or the right task like taking shoes off to get them to solve the problem that we want 
And I think this, we were talking earlier about, um, you know, the difference, how to implement this um, approach, like a different approach as a therapist. But I think the thing is, when you're thinking about skill coordination, you're not being a therapist anymore. So you're actually being a coach. And I think anyone who has coached, whether that's running, footy, tennis, golf, strength and conditioning coach, um, anyone who's coached realises that there is a massive art to it um, and you can't just, you can't be a really good, say, tennis coach or running coach with just reading the books on how to do it or looking at the evidence of how, you know, Rafael Nadal became an amazing player. There's such an art to it. Um, and I think, say for yourself, you and I, we're in this kind of difficult situation where we're trying to be therapists, but we've actually realised we're coaches. Yeah. And we're trying to convince, or we're trying to influence some of the therapists of the world that, you know, coordination and skill-based training is really important, but we're preaching to a crowd that wants the data and the yeah. science. Yep. which is actually quite hard to come by because a lot of it is looking at, um, yeah, those first principles or looking at connecting different fields and, yeah, just trusting in movement quality or that, um, yeah, kind of that art of assessing movement, teaching movement, getting someone to learn a new skill and that real individualised approach as well. Oh, no, no, so so well said. Um like it's 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 um like just it came to mind like another patient i had like um just the other day when you're talking just about like that interplay between people wanting like um sort of like a more like they they're trying to change their running by more how running's described like in the literature or the textbooks um and then they're trying to like impart that knowledge um, and use that knowledge and force the change. And then yeah. like you say, like that, that not, is not necessarily like the best way, like, um, to, when you're actually like trying to do it, like sometimes you just got to get the focus in the right spot, I guess. And, and every, every athlete is so different, like from a, from a coaching standpoint, like you're walking, like I just do a lot of the running drills like out on the road in front of where I practice. And, um, you know, sometimes for 20 minutes, 30 minutes, we're just walking back and forth and, and I'm just listening to how that the athlete describes the drill. And, um, like they're like, I've just reading Nick Winkleman's like language of coaching again, like, um, mm -hmm. and like, uh, it's such a good book because, um, uh, the the meaning of like certain uh, words is so different to everyone, and mm. and so like your language of like how you can actually get through to someone to uh, like say you have seen something in 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 a runner. So this runner that I, I was alluding to um, the other week, uh, he had many years of knee pain, and he's and you know the proof will be in the pudding. Like um, like over the next next few few months, like whether like some technical changes that we're working on, like help at all. 
Uh, he's tried strength training. Um, he's tried uh, a lot of things. Um, the strength training certainly helps, um, but no one had looked at his running. And um, when he ran, he had a really um, quite obvious overstride and, and um, uh, yeah, just wasn't utilizing his calf uh, or glutes um, at the right time on impact at all. And, mm -hmm. but the cue that we used to get him to sort of understand that was, um, he came up with it. Like he just said, oh, do you mean like you want me to run a bit more bouncy? And that, that was <laughs> as simple as the cue, but as soon as like, and that, this was like an emergent process. Like we'd done a lot of drills to get to this stage and he'd done a lot of like reflecting it on the video. Um, and we'd, you know, been talking about certain things and, and then he just like the, the way that he moved once he sort of had that like analogy or that visualization in his head was like so, so good. And he, and he, and it, just seeing his face after it, he's just like, I reckon I could run forever like this. Mm. Um, anyway, we'll see how it goes, but like, it just, yeah. it, that's not, that's not, um, that's, that's an, that's an, uh, that's sort of like a good example of coaching versus, um, uh, telling Scripting. someone what to do. Yeah. Sure, yeah, because it's got to have meaning to them. There's got to be an association with that word of what you want them to do. So, you know, bouncy to him was perfect. Bouncy yeah. to the next person, yeah. they might be like too up and yeah. down and really kind of like over-exaggerating because they're, they're picturing in their, their mental imagery as, is a whatever, like a pogo stick, whereas his <laughs> is just a gazelle yes. or like, Yes. You know, everyone has this different association with words. Um, and that's all a word is just, you know, what it's associated with. And so if you can find the right word or language that actually matches up with the association of, you know, that mental image of what you want them to do, then that's going to be powerful and they'll, they'll be able to learn there. So yeah, I'll use different things like, He'll talk about um, an analogy of like, say you're getting someone to land and they're landing really rigid and with really high forces. So a cue can just be, um, okay, on the next box jump, try and land like a cat. Yeah. And yeah. it's like, for some people that works. Like yeah. if someone's got, a, owns a cat, <laughs> loves their cat, and they see it every day, you know, just jump off off the couch or off the fence and it doesn't make any sound. It's really like soft with it and then it just keeps moving. It just absorbs that impact. Then that person's probably going to have that mental image, jump onto the box and they're going to try and emulate exactly that association of land softly. Whereas the next person's like, cat, what do you mean? Like a, a big cat, like big clumsy cat or, and they'll, they just won't have that mental imagery to execute well if the cue's not right but you might say to that person okay i want you to land softly or i want you to um, make as little sound as possible and so that that might work better for them so that's that's different that's more like an auditory cue so sometimes someone will land and it's just loud and i'll just close my eyes and i'll be like oh can you do that again i'm like geez that's loud yeah <laughs> and then the cue is just okay i want you to try not to make any noise with the landing yeah. And so that's your cue and they have to self-organize their body in space, yes. which is actually getting what you want to reduce impact, landing impact and to be able to muscular um, shock absorb it better. Yep. 
but they're just solving a problem. Okay, I've been given a task, a problem to make less sound. And so the first rep, oh, it's really loud. Oh, shit, that didn't work. Feedback, knowledge of results. Got to change my strategy. Try again. Oh, that was a little bit quieter. Okay, let's do more of that. The brain's thinking. Okay, again, oh, that was quieter. Cool, whatever we did there was what I need to do. Yeah. And so that was probably the right strategy. And so if I said something like, okay, that was really jarry, you landed really extended, it was high impact forces, this time I want you to bend into your knees and hips when you land, you're just telling someone what to do. You're not allowing them to find the right solution. And they might get what you want, but they did not learn anything. The yeah. brain didn't go, okay, I, I know how to solve this problem. Oh, cool. And didn't explore. It didn't trial and error. It didn't get feedback. It was just like, okay, Tom wanted me to bend the knees and the hips more. Okay, yeah. And there's no association between that and reduced impact forces. And it's going to create rigidity. You didn't get them to work out how to, to execute the movement in space. And yeah. I think it goes back to like, I don't know. I just think like when we think of skill and movement, it's got to be able to scale across different movement skills. So like, yeah, when you were talking about running before and people really trying to find the right, the exact correct form or the exact correct cue, um, I don't know why, but I was thinking of like learning to say, Eat. So say yeah. when a kid learns to feed themselves with a spoon, yep. imagine if we if someone was not getting the results they wanted, so they were, you know, trying to feed themselves and not getting it in their mouth. Yeah. And they were searching the literature of like, okay, well, how <laughs> should I bend my elbow? And how much shoulder flexion do I need to get up? And how much wrist um, elbow pronation to get that? in and so then you might get someone who just get the food in the hole <laughs> yeah, just get to solve the problem <laughs> and your body will work it out yeah your body will find you know move in space and that will look slightly different if you're you know eating different foods but it's still just a movement skill and so that's just you know solving that problem of feeding yourself but the arm is going to move through space in different positions for different people who have different arm lengths and amount of um, range through shoulders, elbows, wrists. And every rep's going to look a tiny little bit different as well. And we're going to adjust. So sometimes the shoulder moves a tiny bit more to get, you know, the spoon up to the mouth. Sometimes the wrist rotates more and that's movement variability. So there's a lot of different ways that your body can do it. And so the, say the baby or the toddler who's learning to feed themselves, they don't have as much movement variability. And so that results in half the food you know, <laughs> hitting the side of the chin. Yeah. So they're not as effective with their technique, but they're getting feedback every time. Oh, that didn't go in. That didn't go in. <laughs> didn't go in. So they're learning new ways to do, oh, okay, or well, maybe I need to bring in the wrist into it. Oh, cool. And that's called um, freeing degrees of freedom. So when we first learn a skill, running, walking, feeding, kicking a footy, we first freeze degrees of freedom. So 
basically the body if we think about all the joints in the body i'm not exactly sure how many but there's so many different joints and they every joint has a certain amount of different directions it can move in so a wrist joint can you know um, flex and extend radial and ulnar deviate and a few sort of combinations of those as well so that's just one joint and so there might be you know four or six degrees of freedom so that's quite complicated for the brain to control that when we're say feeding ourselves or learning how to um, hit a forehand in tennis and so to decrease the complexity of the skill what the brain just goes is okay i don't want to have to control that joint i'm going to freeze it and it just locks it in neutral and so that wrist is not involved in the movement the brain doesn't have to organize that that wrist at all and so that's really good for the initial stages of learning but that's characteristic of a beginner they'll freeze degrees of freedom so anyone who's watched someone kick a footy for the first time will see their arms are out straight the leg swings through really straight really rigid um, so there's minimal sort of fluidity and there's a reduction in the degrees of freedom. Anyone who's seen a tennis player first pick up a racket, the wrist is locked, the elbow is really locked, there's no thoracic rotation, there's no pelvic rotation, it's just a big swing. And so again, simplified, because we're moving joints together as one. And again, baby learning to walk, you know, the, the ankle stays locked and rigid, the knee might move, but the hip will just swing through it's it's very rigid so again that is very good initially because it decreases the complexity of a movement for the brain but it's not an adaptable way to move so there's minimal movement variability um, and it doesn't mean that it always works so that baby who's trying to feed itself who you know locks the wrist and locks maybe the elbow and just moves at the shoulder or, or whatever it is sometimes they'll miss and so again, that feedback and that tennis player who's learning to hit the shot, sometimes they'll miss. And so again, oh, that this strategy isn't working yet. Okay, I need to adjust this a little bit. Oh, okay, I've got an elbow that can move. Yeah. I've got a wrist. Oh, I didn't know that wrist can kind of deviate and move. Oh, cool. And so the brain's just working that out to solve the problem. And when that happens, so to move from that freezing degrees of freedom towards freeing degrees of freedom that's characteristic of learning so we're getting more joints involved in the movement um, and we're increasing our movement variability so we're finding different ways to do it so the the baby again or the toddler feeding themselves lifts up oh okay now i can move the wrist oh that went into my mouth i just successfully did it oh cool and so that's um yeah going to increase that the effectiveness of, of the movement because they've found new different ways to do it and they can adapt their movement now. Yep. Um, and so the tennis player who has unlocked the um, elbow and starts to get, you know, some supination and pronation, all of a sudden they can adapt when that drop shot um, has a lot of backspin on it and they can quickly move into a different, more variable position, use a different joint. So they're more highly skilled. And so it's just the opposite of rigid. So I think of it as like you can be a rigid mover and that's okay. It's simple, but it's not adaptable. When the surface environment task changes, 
you can't adapt your strategy. Or you can be a fluid mover who can adapt to any type of environment or task um, changes or constraint. And that they have a lot of different ways to doing it. They can spread stress well throughout the body because they're not always just stressing these this same areas. Um, and it even comes down to, like, say, a movement disorder. So say, you know, you've got a neurological disorder like Parkinson's that's characterized by rigidity. And literally in Parkinson's, you get something called freezing. So they literally freeze um, and they lose their movement variability. So they become rigid, they shuffle, they move segments together instead of separately. So they've lost their coordination. Um, and so they become a fool's risk because you might have someone where rigid movement um, is okay on flat ground, but as soon as that environment changes where you need to adapt your movement strategy, if you don't have a second solution, you're just not going to be able to stay upright. So it comes down to rigid movement that's has minimal variability and ability to adapt is less coordinated and less skillful. And you've got the other end of the spectrum where fluid movement has a lot of different ways of completing a task, a lot of different solutions to the problem. You can chuck anything at them and they can adapt. Um, and so they're going to be more coordinated, more highly skillful, but they're going to spread tissue stress around the body well because they just have that movement variability. And that's pretty proven in the research that, you know, movement variability is higher movement variability is a... Um, or low movement variability is a risk factor for injury. And people with that chronic low back pain, when they've had low back pain for a period of time, because they're often very self-focused and conscious on the self, they start to lose their movement variability and they move the pelvis and thorax as, as one instead of separately. So they actually become less coordinated, less skilled as a mover, and that increases their chances of ongoing back pain. So they're just not variable. They've lost it because, yeah, often that brain, that perception of where they are in space has been lost. Um, and so that increases their risk of further injury. And it's even been shown in patellofemoral pain. So those with less movement variability are at higher risk of um, continued injury or pain around patellofemoral pain. So there's not this like definitive research study that shows that movement skill or um, how someone moves is associated with injury. But there's a lot of research around reduced movement variability being a risk factor for injury and ongoing injury. And when we get injured, we change the way we move, we reduce our movement variability. So we lose coordination and skill when we get injured. So not addressing coordination and skill in an injured person is neglecting the fact that someone has often changed the way they move when they're injured and we're not restoring their natural movement patterns. Yes. No, that's that's um, so good. And, and I, I reckon, um, uh, like I see so many, like relating it back to running again, like um, so many runners where, they like no like they know only one way to, to run 
and it's mm-hmm. probably like a, a lack of variability um, in in their running, like that that like your patellofemoral pain um, example. That that is um, one like um, uh, they're not fully capitalizing on the their human body t- for, from a performance standpoint. Like they could be tapping into you know certain other areas of of their body like so that they can move more efficiently and and uh disperse the the load um uh across um uh fascia better uh, um and the um uh, uh the elasticity of their body like just by getting better timing um yeah. but the thing is like what's really fascinated me like what about tom the idea of um the concept of bad variability and good variability like like what's your understanding there yeah so bad variability so there is probably a middle ground um so again take that parkinson's patient yeah and so you can have functional and non-functional variability yeah so non-functional variability would be someone who moves the same with every single step. So their movement looks exactly the same all the time. Yeah. But what they get changes in, say with walking or with running, is they get changes in their step length. They get changes in their contact time. So they've got variability in those parameters, which is actually not good. So we want to maintain consistency with things like stride length or contact time or um, in walking step length um, and I guess relative symmetry. So more the outcome. Yeah, the outcome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. sorry. Yeah, 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 exactly. So say you've got, um, yeah, say someone's playing darts Yeah. and they're moving exactly the same. Oh, darts might not be the best because it's quite a closed skill, but we use it anyway. Yeah. Um, so say someone's, you're measuring their joint range of motion of their shoulder, elbow, wrist, and fingers with every throw. And let's say that it's really, really consistent. So they're moving exactly the same and you're like, oh, cool. They're really consistent with their technique. But then you look at the dartboard and you see every single dart is in a slightly different position. There's four of them are off the board. You know, one of them's close, but they're all over the shop. So the outcome's different, and that's the same as walking or running. So you move exactly the same, but your outcomes of your stride length, it's all over the place. So you're basically playing darts all over the place when you're moving exactly the same. But then we have the next person who um, we, we measure their joint angles of running, walking, or darts, and every single rep looks different. Like, oh, shit, they moved the elbow more. That was slightly different. Um, or they bend the knee a bit more, or they they use the ankle. And you're like, oh, this is bad. This is too variable. Like they're moving too too different. But then you look at the dartboard or you look at the stride consistency or step consistency or contact time, and every dart is close to the bullseye and every step is very consistent or every stride length or contact time is consistent. And so they've got functional variability. So they move the body in variable ways to produce an outcome or result that's really, really consistent. 
And that's what we want with movement. So we want variability in the actual movements to produce consistent outcomes. Yeah. And so the opposite would be non-functional variability where we're moving exactly the same all the time. We're getting all these outcomes all over the shop. And for me, this is where strength and conditioning, safer for running, comes in really handy because you just run and you're just learning one way of doing things. But if you added in um, or if someone added in some yoga, they're just learning to move the body in slightly different ways. And hopefully someone's skilled enough or a teacher to slightly change a habit or pattern that that person's always going into. And then if you add S and C or strength and conditioning, you're adding some more movement variability as well. And so what we should be doing as a coach for that runner in the gym, let's just say you've got a runner who's got low back pain and you notice they dip into heaps of anterior pelvic tilt and extension at the spine. You could look at the research and say, um, oh, anterior pelvic tilt's fine. Like, don't change it. Why change it? But a counter-argument would be, well, posterior pelvic tilt's fine as well. Like, we may as well have two options. Why not teach someone how... They already know how to anterior tilt. They live 95% of their life there. Why not teach them how to posterior tilt so they can even it out and get a bit of movement variability? So that runner in the gym, often they'll really squat and deadlift and jump in anterior pelvic tilt because that's their pattern, that's their way of doing things. But that's not that adaptable. It's just one solution. There's, you know, the pelvis can go back into posterior tilt. Or So you're teaching someone how to get out of that position too. Okay, I know you can anterior pelvic tilt really well and I'm fine with you squatting like that, but can you get a, a move into a neutral pelvis and squat? Can you posterior pelvic tilt and squat? Oh, cool. Let's teach you that. Okay, now instead of you just going to anterior tilt with every single movement as a movement strategy, at least you have the option of getting out of that position. Your brain knows what it feels like in space to be in posterior tilt because previously your brain wasn't really aware that there was a posterior tilt. Yeah. And so that's variability too. And so you're changing stress by giving someone another option yep and more options is always better than less so it's not it should be never about is this movement good is that movement bad should we change this there's no evidence for that it's like what does the person not have give them back what they don't have yeah it would be like if someone so say you've got an elbow and someone's getting you know elbow pain and they know how to pronate the elbow so turn the wrist down but they have they can't work out how to how to supinate the elbow and so you're just kind of teaching them the movement that they don't yet have and you would hope then if they do you know a reaching task or a tennis shot or whatever that now they can kind of supinate as well <laughs> spread tissue stress away so that's yep. how i think of movement variability it's like if someone is really knock knee on a single leg squat or a hop or running, it's like, okay, there's nothing wrong with it, but do you know how to get out of that position into external rotation? My role can be, can I teach you that a hip can externally rotate as well? Can I teach you the skill to generate external rotation? Because I know 
you can knee valgus knock knee but can you get out of that position too because i may as well give you the option and i'm not saying that there's anything wrong with going knock knee there's nothing wrong with being able to hold the knee out much like there's nothing wrong with the anterior pelvic tilt nothing wrong with the posterior pelvic tilt <laughs> yep like yeah it's 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 more options and if if we know that movement variability is more skilled movement and reduces injury risk or is associated with ongoing chronic injury, then we're doing people a disservice if we're not teaching them new different ways of moving if they're injured, if we're just adding load towards movements that they've already got, we're essentially ignoring movement variability for someone. Yep. And that's not a great way to practice to actually teach someone so we've got to kind of change that mindset of a patient is not someone that we're given prescriptive load to all the time. Yeah. They should be learning. We should be thinking about neuroplasticity and their brain and what changes we can make and how to facilitate an environment task problem for them to solve so that they learn. Yeah. Well, the, like, what would you say, like... Um... So like, obviously like the body is amazing in terms of adapting, like to however, how we run, like, you know, you can choose whatever way you run and the body, you know, gradually the bones, the tendons, the muscles, everything like starts to, um, acknowledge like, oh, okay, I'm getting more stress here. I've got to strengthen this area. So it does get stronger. Um, uh, there's a lot of people that, a lot of people that like just, um, go okay well if that's the case then we can run how we want and then we just strengthen that tissue over time and we work with it and it and it and it'll just get stronger um i know it's a pretty hard question to answer um but um where do you stand there on that i think anything is has to scale so it's like Okay, that movement, so the way that person moves is fine for what they want to do in life. So if they just want to run 5Ks and those, the biomechanics they have is, is, is okay, you can adapt tissue, but would those biomechanics stack up to 15, 20Ks? Yeah. So load exposes biomechanics as much as anything. Um, and there's usually a point, and basically that person who doesn't move as well often just has that lower ability to adapt to increase loads. And you probably know more about yeah. this than I do. Like you would see, I see that all the time. Exposure of yeah. these biomechanic or these not necessarily it's not even biomechanics coordination yeah. Yeah. issues because you need to be efficient for distances that you're running. Yeah. And if you're not efficient with your running, something will break down in the kinetic chain. Yeah. Like there's Would so many say? like factors that like go into someone's resilience. Like, you know, yeah. it could be a mul mul multiple things, but from a purely like thinking of it from a movement pattern side of things, like if you're not moving in a way that is conducive to how the human body looks to be designed um and yeah. you're not spreading the stress um th through it like how it could um because you only know sort of one one way 
um, then yeah, I, I really think it's a big limiter. Like, um, like, yeah, sure. The body adapts and gets stronger to the way that you run. But I, th I still think there's, there's potentially like 20, 30 Ks, 40 Ks left on the table for that, that person, mm. like who knows the numbers, but like that they could, could potentially like be, um, working their way up to over a couple of like, like over several years. Like if they, if they, um, uh, learnt to sort of move differently and, and work with their body better. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we're taking the therapist hat off again, Yeah, <laughs> which is good because yeah. we should be coaches as much as anything. Um, but I just think that we know that movement variability and injury are associated. So there's one reason to change the way someone moves, I'm not so saying the way someone runs, but one yep. reason to increase their options. Um, and again, that's really needed to whatever someone is doing is not necessarily working for them. And so we want to give them more options. And so whether that's running or whether that's squatting or whatever movement that is, but also, yeah, we're looking at things more from a efficiency and performance or we're looking at, at both at both hats so we're trying to improve someone's function and performance as much as we're trying to in, reduce injury risk um and yeah why would we not try and improve that skill if we can help someone yeah improve that performance so it would be like i don't know i always think of not just running but i try and relate it to so many different skills so yep. if i was trying to yeah if i was a coach trying to teach someone how to kick or how to swim then i feel like i would always be looking at their inefficiencies so i'd be trying to find out where they're not moving well you know what what is the ideal swimming technique first yeah because there is an ideal there's a normative technique for any skill but how, how is this individual's biomechanics or constraints on their system going to change the way I look at, you know, what's normative for them? Yep. And then how can I maximize their efficiency in the water or kicking so that the right tissues are taking the right amount of loads? And so for running, so say you've got a leg. Yep. I mean, the way the leg has changed and evolved over time is no accident. So we've got, you know, a big toe that needs to get down to the ground. We want that big toe to be pushing off because it's three times as thick as the second toe. So one thing is for sure that's designed or adapted for, for taking load. So if someone's not getting load through that big toe, that's probably not what the second toe is designed for. Yep. So then if you move up towards the Achilles, I mean, there's, there's a reason why the Achilles is long and, you know, an energy saving, efficient, yeah. um, efficient, elastic energy storer. So if that yeah. Achilles is not able to perform its role of supplying and releasing elastic energy, then to me, that's a bit of an issue. There's, there's some untapped potential there. We know that Soleus has the biggest physiological cross-sectional area in the body. It's designed, like the design of the structure always reflects function. So Soleus is, its fibers are multi-penate 
And so that means it's got this huge physiological cross-sectional area. So it is designed for producing massive amounts of force into the ground. Whereas gastroc has a smaller um, physiological cross-sectional area. And so it's not as designed for force producing. It's got this long Achilles. It's designed more for, it's more like speed, I guess. Um, and so that's just one way of looking at it. And then you might think, okay, well, this person, yeah, they're running okay, but I don't think that ankle is doing anything. I don't think that calf is, I don't think Soleus is in a good position for producing force into the ground. What's Soleus's design? Okay, this multi-pennant muscle, yeah. which has a huge physiological cross-sectional area. <laughs> Let's strengthen it, sure, but they're still not in a position to execute or coordinate or use the strength that they have. Yep. And so how about we strengthen it, improve its capacity, but also let's slightly alter their coordination pattern so that Soleus, which has all this potential, is in a position to produce all that force into the ground. And for that, I need to alter this person's stride. Um, to use that Achilles, I need to make sure the, the ground contact time is shorter. To make sure the ankle's absorbing, I need to slightly change that foot position or foot strike or I need to get them barefoot because I need they're not tapping into the, their biology or this potential of um, you know this elastic Achilles which is there literally for movement efficiency um, and that's leaving something on the table and again this is this is coaching more so performance and function yeah but it's separating things from pain and I think that's how you or I have probably changed our practice when yeah. someone comes in I never treat pain. Yeah. I don't treat pain. And it's like I don't see acute pain. I see someone and I look for for where they could improve their function. But I think I know, they like relate so well. Like I think if you're improving someone's yeah. function and they're moving how their body's structurally designed to move, then surely like that you'd think that that would like um, help their pain. For sure. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And design to move is like, it's a tricky one to explain. And even we're just kind of <laughs> sorting yeah. through our thoughts here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but like, again, say I always think of kicking a footy because I, that's just something has come naturally to me as I've learned it. But there is a really right way to kick a footy. There's a way that our body organize itself in space to move efficiently and so what that would be would be as you swing the leg back the knee flexes the hip extends and then what happens is as we swing that leg through the kinetic chain we get something called the summation of speed so what we need to happen for our quads tendon um, to be storing elastic energy for our hip flexor to get that um, progressive proximal to distal movement, we actually need the hip to flex first before the knee starts to extend. Then when the hip reaches maximal velocity of speed um, into hip flexion, then the knee starts to extend. So as the knee's extended, the ankle hasn't started to move or to, what would it be, dorsiflex, plantar flex. Um, as that knee starts to extend and reaches its maximal velocity, then the ankle starts to move. 
And so this is a kinetic chink, um, link. It's the summation of speed. So there's a way, there's a reason the body does that. It allows the quads to stay in a good length tension position. It allows the quads tendon, patella tendon to um, store and release elastic energy. And so when we throw out that timing, then we don't get this, um, yeah, that kinetic chain transfer of momentum from proximal to distal. And so we get this in tennis as well. So basically any rotation sport, it's a bit easier to see. So in say a tennis serve or a golf swing, the right way, the way we're designed to move, which is actually, you know, people will raise their eyebrows, but we are designed to use the body in a certain way. So if someone is um, doing a tennis forehand or let's say a golf swing, Yep. The ideal way to move is to generate momentum from the legs. And then from a rotation point of view, the pelvis rotates first, then the trunk, then the shoulder moves, then the elbow, then the wrist, and then the racket. Yep. And yep. so again, that's that summation of speed. One segment, and the separ we call it separation of segments. So if someone doesn't have separation, if there's no lag between pelvic rotation thoracic rotation shoulder, if the pelvis and the thorax move as one, someone has less movement variability. So there's less, there's no dissociation, they're less coordinated. And so they miss out on that momentum from pelvis to thorax. And if someone moves like that, they're at increased risk of shoulder injury in tennis. And so that's where that efficiency of movement, that not leaking energy up the kinetic chain shifts load to an area of a shoulder that isn't as capable as the torso in generating momentum, strength, power up through that kinetic chain via summation of speed. And so you could say, okay, well, the shoulder, that person moves fine, that shoulder's injured, let's strengthen that shoulder, let's not change it. But the torso, the pelvis is designed to move first in a rotation movement like that and it's designed to generate momentum for the next segment. And that next segment in an ideal right way to move, that torso doesn't start rotating until that pelvis reaches maximal rotational velocity. Then the thorax starts moving. So there's this lag, then the shoulder and this is almost impossible for us to see, like it's kind of, you know, yeah. you need 3D motion capture. Yeah. But that is an efficient, ideal way to move where the right muscles are generating force, we're moving proximally to distally, we're not leaking energy, and the right muscular groups that are designed for force production or elastic energy use are being utilised in the right way. And if someone's moving well, like they're designed to move for generating rotational strength, power, force, then they'll have a decreased risk of shoulder injury. And so yeah. running is going to be the same thing. Well, running is exactly the same. Yeah, it's the same. It's the yeah. same as kicking the foot. It's just like yeah. there's this kinetic chain yeah. that has an ideal way to move. There are musc muscle groups that are designed for producing force. There are tendons that are designed to be in positions to store and release elastic energy. There's a glute max that's there, you know, if we need to generate horizontal power or it's there for shock absorption. And when we're not utilizing these structures and thinking of the way that they're designed or they're, they're actually structured, 
then again, we are potentially stressing areas we don't need to, but also having someone that's not moving efficiently. Yeah. And it's not going to be as functionally, um, yeah, it's functionally good as, from a performance point of view. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, no, like, um, like that example, like um, they said, like I was just thinking of running the whole time because you, like, it's sort of what I was saying about that whole dominoes effect of like once you get people mm. focused on that first, say maybe the proximal segment of like getting, mm. like I often get people to run over mini hurdles and I get them to start with their knee flexed to ninety degrees at the hip, um, yep. and then just get them to focus on putting their foot down, like whipping from the hip and just landing just over the over the hurdle, and yep. that's that's um, maybe like for a bulk majority of, of runners I see like that's a, a really good focus because a lot of those runners are over casting and over striding and la- running yep. with more a walking mechanic yeah. and I'm trying to get them to tap into that that idea of like what about if you like um feel what it feels like to really swing and create momentum um uh down into the ground below you um, yeah. And you'll be surprised, like that's all you're focusing on, and how much, like suddenly the Achilles is in, like it's like you've suddenly um, got a backswing <laughs> to your running, whereas yeah. like, like before that you weren't like putting your Achilles in a very functionally uh, optimal position to really um, uh, give you the spring that it can can offer. Um, yeah. you're, you're landing on the heel in a, and and then your glutes aren't in a very good position either. Um, uh, yeah, it's, yeah. <laughs> it's almost related to imagine you're um, hitting a baseball, yep. you're a batter, um, and or even say pitching a baseball, and this this might be wrong in terms of running, but <laughs> let me know if it makes sense. So say you're pitching and you wind up and then you throw and follow through. I mean, that's the ideal way to pitch. You're utilizing the stretch shortening cycle, you're storing elastic energy, you're generating power. But the opposite is starting your arm back in that back position and then just pushing from there. Yeah. Um, that could be similar to like an yes. overstride where someone just uncurls the leg in front of them as opposed to getting that back swing, swing leg retraction. And I think like yeah. if you think about say that swing leg retraction. So all you might be getting them to self-organize there is at terminal swing phase of running, instead of knee extension happening before hip extension, all you're self-organizing is I want hip extension to happen first. Because we know when you move proximally first, um, then we can utilize that kinetic chain to a better extent um, and it's a more efficient way to move so if I liken that to the footy kick again if I had someone who's got that backswing and they start straightening the knee before the hip moves it's not a good way to generate that elastic energy through the hip flexor through the quads tendon it's not a good way to keep the quads in a good length tension position it's going to be pretty inefficient. They might still kick the ball. It might go distance, but they didn't get that proximal to distal kinetic chain movement that I wanted. Yep. And I might just use one cue. Okay, I want you to 
can't even think. Or you might give them a problem to solve. Like, yeah. Um, I can't think for footy at the moment. But yep. it would be that their timing was off. Yep. So the timing of their movement, yeah, and that's something you talk about a lot. But they got they moved their knee before the hip had had a chance to swing through. Yeah. And something I saw was like that didn't look right, and it didn't. Yeah, they they're not getting injured or they're not they're still kicking okay, but it could be better. Something was off, and it's the tennis player that's playing all right, um, but they're moving. You know, they're not getting that pelvis or leg generation. They're just kind of moving from the torso and upper limb. Or maybe it's the runner that's, you know, striding out and not getting that hip extension pre-ground contact time. So there's something there where the timing of movement is off and it's not allowing the right structures, um, muscles, tendons, joints to stay in their optimal positions Um uh, yeah, either performance, function, reducing injury risk as well. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think, yeah, that's that's cool to touch on. Like, I definitely think there's um, sort of invariant um, uh, aspects to good running. Like, there's things that are pretty, um, uh, like, when you, when you look at an efficient runner, you can sort of see, like, there's some, uh, they've got that swing leg retraction, um, mm. and then teaching it is, is just literally like using constraints and then liaising sort of like we've been talking about, like as a coach, uh, with the patient, um, uh, or, or runner, um, or sports person, like, and just trying to, um, uh, work out what, what gets them to feel that movement over time and, um, sort of gets a few of those light bulb moments. Um, so just playing around with it. Um, yeah. yeah. So much of that's pattern recognition of, you know, you as a, as a runner or clinician knowing what, what good movement looks like. Like if you had a, is there any sport that you know nothing about? Yeah, heaps. Um, uh, um, I don't know, like would be a sport that, oh, hockey? Hey, like, hockey, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, so say you had a hockey player yeah. and I'm like, got you to watch their technique yeah and i said oh they're getting injured reckon their technique is all right yeah and and you like you either go to the books and go well let's <laughs> see like should we change the way a hockey player strikes the ball or oh it's not really evidence for it yeah and you look at how they're moving and you're like oh i can't see much wrong with that but then you have another person who knows the patterns and the movement shapes and the feeling of hockey and looks at this player and goes, oh, that swing's shocking. Like, there's something off here. They're not getting this. They're not getting that. Um, and it'd be the same for running. Like, you know, you have a lot of patterns in your head of what good running looks like. Yeah. And so you can recognize the shapes so that then something is off with someone and you're like, well, it doesn't look right because it doesn't look like the 10,000 other runners <laughs> That I've seen and and then sometimes as a physio we go okay why doesn't it look right okay is there a constraint yeah there is okay that's fine it's an adaptive movement pattern yeah they've adapted around an ankle that doesn't move that well they've adapted around this so that's fine totally fine let's yep. adapt the tissues so we can they can handle that adaptive movement pattern but then sometimes you go and you're like doesn't look right it doesn't really fit the patterns I see what's going on you assess them oh, there's no real reason for that Maybe this is a bit maladaptive. So they've changed the way they move due to a certain injury. 
um, or due to, you know, some reason the way someone told them to run or didn't teach them to run. And so you then look and go, yeah, like they've adapted to this different movement pattern, but I don't think it's working that well for them. There's no real reason why it looks efficient. It doesn't, it doesn't look like I want it to look. Let's change it. And so we might look at that in um, like chronic low back pain as well. So someone injures their lower back um, and has pain with like forward bending, forward flexion, and, they, and a, a good adaptation, so an adaptive movement pattern is to limit the flexion, is to, you know, provide rigidity of the trunk and not flex the spine. That's adaptive because you're protecting a tissue that we shouldn't be stressing and we stress that tissue potentially by bending the back. So we've adapted the movement, but that tissue heals and in three months' time, we should be moving well again. But if we're still moving, protecting, so not flexing, we're moving really rigidly through the spine, that movement becomes maladaptive. So there's no real reason anymore to protect, but the brain's still moving in a way, either by just what it learnt to do, maybe by fear or anxiety or a sensitive nervous system as well. And there's no reason why running is not different. So someone hurts their knee, um, and so it makes sense to limp for a while and to hold you know, some co-contractions around that knee and for it to be, you know, rigid. But then we don't want that, limping's a bit of a stretch, but we don't want that same movement pattern that was adaptive early on in injury to still be there six months later because there's no reason to be protective. It's become a maladaptive movement. And we can assess and go, there's no reason why that movement pattern should look like that. And it doesn't look as efficient as it should or could, just like the lower back. I need to teach someone how to trust the body, how to, to move freely, how to not um, freeze degrees of freedom around that spine or around that knee or around that ankle because they have, they're not moving it. The ankle is stiff through range. They're not actually getting dorsiflexion and plantar flexion through swing. And so this is an issue. I need to try and improve this. Tom, I've held you up uh, for way too long, I reckon. Um, but um, is there anything else? Um, like, would there be like, if what what would be a parting message? Do you think um, that listeners should take from this chat? Oh, here we go. <laughs> I think just reading wider into neuroscience and coordination, and yep. like realizing that motor learning and skill acquisition is a whole field and don't make a judgment on whether we should or shouldn't be looking at movement or change someone's movement until you've read Nikolai Bernstein's book, until yeah. you've listened to Rob Gray, until you yeah. understood what Gabrielle Wolf's talking about, then make a judgment, Yeah, but not before then. Yeah. Yeah. No, I love that, that part in message and I, and I like, um, I'm, uh yeah so so um i think i think the the message should get out there um because there's definitely a bias towards um not not um thinking that it's a factor at well the it's moment. easy to think like that it's yeah. easy to just go shit that stuff's like hard to implement which it is yeah Jeez, that stuff is um confusing which it can be 
And it's easier to go, oh, like I'm pretty happy with what I know about pain science, biomechanics and SNC. I'm pretty comfortable with these practitioners that I look up to who agree with me. That stuff, well, it's not proven. So I'm not even going to bother because there's a field there that I don't know about. Yeah. And so if there's a field that you don't know about, it's better to be curious about it and to open that world and be like, oh, geez, there's something here. I was maybe I was wrong or maybe I need to adapt yeah. and change the way I'm doing things a little bit. It's hard. <laughs> but otherwise, you're just leaving a huge field of knowledge untapped because it's easier to stay in that same line of thinking and not, you know, learn that you can think for yourself as well. Um, unbelievable. Thanks, mate. Um, uh, it, I'll um, include a bit of an intro to this show. Um, uh, and, uh, yeah, everyone who, who wants to look look up um, and find um, more about Tom, um, uh, where can they find you, mate? And uh, uh, Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, mechanics underscore of movement, social media uh, tend to do a fair bit of educational posts and content. And yeah, you and I have um, developed an app program, Run Stronger, which is a mix of skill-based exercises and then 12 weeks of um, strength and conditioning as well. So yeah, if you want to learn more about what we're talking about, I try and post a lot on first principles, which the more you get your head around, the more you can understand different fields. And yeah, it's pretty crazy what Dane and I have worked out the links between you know, these different fields that we're, that we're finding. And we wouldn't have started thinking or practicing like this without having an open mind towards, you know, is, is the science always the only thing we should be looking at? Um, and can we prove everything? Can we, can we learn about how the brain learns and use that evidence within the way we teach someone? Can we look at, you know, the science of neuroplasticity or complex systems and understand that the human's a complex system as well? So, yeah, I think that's kind of another key, just realising that you don't just have to read the Journal of Physiotherapy. It's, it can be so much wider than that when you're dealing with a person. Yeah, I, I definitely think, um, yeah, all that Charlie Munger stuff like on mental models and um mm. and yeah the first principles is, is definitely um uh expanded or made me a better practitioner for sure and even just like or just like yeah it's just definitely um good to have some general general um truths uh, about the world um yeah. that just makes yeah, sense in every realm you you live in <laughs> um yeah, yeah yeah absolutely yeah you can always come back to the things that are given like hardline evidence. Yep. Yeah. Uh, awesome, Tom. Thanks for the chat, mate. Yeah. Um, I didn't know we were recording for the first 15 minutes. So. <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> I like I'll, to get back on the, the deers and the babies. <laughs> <laughs> no, I thought that was gold. So we'll keep that in there. Um, I'll send you a copy and you can have a listen and, and then I'll um, publish it. Yeah. All right, mate. All right. Good to chat. Awesome, mate. Chat soon. Sweet. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.